Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things, right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. We all know as a practice owner, one of the last things you want to think about is tax planning and strategizing for your practice. In addition, the long list of tasks on your radar, it's really hard to do everything. You have to find a trustworthy team of experts that understands the unique and specific needs within veterinary medicine. My suggestion would be my friends at Granite Peak Associates. Granite Peak is an advanced tax planning and veterinary practice advisory firm who has spent many years working within vet med. Their team works year round to make sure you're able to maximize your profitability while also minimizing your liabilities. Whether you're in the process of purchasing a practice, looking to grow your practice, or transitioning towards the sale of your practice, they are the experts to help guide you through. What makes them different than other firms is their devotion to proactive tax planning. By thinking into the future and creating long-lasting relationships with their clients, Granite Peak can help minimize the amount of taxes paid over the course of many years to come. Head over to their website, granitepeakcpa.com, to receive a personalized comparison of your practice financials against over 140 other hospitals that they've worked with. You'll be able to see how your practice ranks, where you stack up, and where the opportunities are to get better. From there, you can schedule a one-on-one call with one of the members of their team to review and analyze your results. The opportunity speaks for itself. You need someone on your side. Granite Peak Associates is that team. Take advantage of their innovative expertise within the veterinary industry. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 179 with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first, but I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate 
or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay. So link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. All right, welcome back and uh, have another special guest. And it's exciting because she just returned from VMX and Vet Partners, which we'll get into in just a second. But I'm here with Dr. Kelly Cooper. And she is a veterinarian, speaker, writer, and people builder. And so basically what she has done throughout her career is now led to kind of a recreation, right? But it's empowering leaders to achieve success through purpose, planning, and process. Dr. Cooper, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Isaiah. It is fantastic to be here on your podcast today. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, we were both talking about gloomy weather. You're in Portland. I'm in Indiana. I think it's similar. We were supposed to get a bunch of ice, but it's just rainy, wet, and cold. So I was like, oh, that feels Pacific Northwest, I guess, other it, than we don't is. have the beauty of the mountains. <laughs> yeah, I moved here in 2020 in the midst of the crazy pandemic. And so winter gray is um, starts in October and goes through June. So it's like a good six months of just gray and gloom, punctuated by little moments of sunshine. But I'm a Texas girl, and so it is quite a change. I'm taking lots of vitamin D to keep myself walking and, and nutritionally balanced. 100%. So you just came back. So VMX and Vet Partners would have been last week or the week before that, so like last two weeks. What was memorable? Any key things that were takeaways? Anything you want to share with folks? Yeah, so many things. So I am somewhat new to the consulting world, and as you were you know, kind of introducing my bio... I kind of hear how much better I need to define what it is I'm doing, but this is my third career jump. And so with building and building a coaching and consulting business, really focused on aspiring owners, new owners, and in doing that, I'm learning the ropes of getting into coaching and consulting. So that is this vet partners and veteran partners is a group of industry consultants, like some pretty amazing minds and experts in the room. They meet for a few days before VMX. And talk about, you know, just what's happening in the industry, talk about, you know, it's a lot of networking and meeting people. And so that was, you know, about two and a half days or so. And then VMX kicked off last Saturday. It went through Wednesday and I was there for about five days. So for me, really just meeting some amazing people, you know, that do what I do, that lift up the industry. So we've got some industry experts in data, in real estate, in lending, people who are watching the trends of what's going on. So there was that at a high level. I actually talked a little bit about patient safety and some of my background from Banfield. And then we also just you know got to know a ton of people that are doing this work. So that was very energizing and really, really good to take that then into VMX, 
with, I don't know, 26,000 attendees there. It feels like this monstrous event. So energizing. So many people there, just seeing all the veterinarians and technicians and managers come into that meeting. Incredible CE, incredible learning, incredible opportunity. I spent a lot of my time, I did two wet labs, just kind of honing my surgical skills because I do still practice a few days a week to pay the bills while I'm building this business. And then I spent some time, you know, just listening to leadership consultants and coaches talk about what they do to understand, you know, who's doing this well and and what's going on. And then the rest of my time was on the expo floor and just meeting people, learning who serves veterinarians, right? Which is everybody that's there. And I actually set this challenge up for myself to like, because I'm an introvert at heart and I don't like selfies. So I decided to do 10 selfies and post it on LinkedIn to say, okay, I'm going to go meet a lot of people on purpose within my capacity, but then I'm going to take selfies and post it. So it was a lot of fun. So I think from just a personal development place, it was awesome, right? A really great moment from an understanding what's happening in the industry. Also just really good learning and knowledge. I like to stay abreast of at a high level, what's happening in our industry, as well as helping you know, the individual mom and pop. And I think it definitely served both purposes. Yeah, I love that. And so your background, and I want to kind of get into that. So today it's uh, reality vet consulting, right? And so you were a practice owner for 16 years in New Mexico. Then you talked about Banfield a second ago. So let's kind of stitch that all together of how you got to where you're at today. And, and then we can kind of pick on a couple different pieces of that have been instrumental for why you're doing what you're doing today. Sure. My path, right? My path is why I'm at where I am today. So I came out of practice. I came out of vet school and wanted to own a practice like many. You know, I thought that was going to be the penultimate goal of being a veterinarian. And I ended up buying a practice one year out of school in rural New Mexico with like no sense, right? No money, no sense. And I bought a practice, which I think a lot of veterinarians do today. And I didn't know how to lead people. I didn't know how I did to have lead people. I didn't know how to run a business. Yeah, just wanted to own a practice. That's it. I had the means to do so. So I jumped in. And I, so rural Southeast New Mexico, mixed animal practice. I did mix for about five to six years, decided to go small animal after a small incident with a horse did not end well for me and did small animal for about 10 years. And in that time, I honed my business skills, my small animal skills, my people skills, you know, my customer service skills. And that path really led me to love the idea and work of developing others. So I went from really being a horrible micromanager in my early days to ending that time as having this team around me that were incredible folks, right? Like they were totally empowered. They kind of ran the practice. I got to work there and leaving that was really hard, but I recognized I wanted to do something else besides own a practice. And so I had an opportunity to join Banfield. I did not know it was Banfield in the moment. I just knew it was a corporate group and there was a headhunter looking for someone and it was a field leadership position. So I would be able to coach doctors, develop doctors, manage doctors in Oklahoma, which is where I had gone to vet school, Oklahoma State, go folks. And I love that. You know, so I, I moved into Banfield and we had 14 hospitals, about 35 doctors. And my role was really to lift them up and to lift those teams up and help them be their best. And so that's what drew me into corporate. And I sold my practice and went and did that. I stayed in the district space for about five, six years. And then I went to the regional vice president role 
and was there for about two and a half years where I led multiple markets. And then from there, I went to a divisional role, which was half the country, but there was no other half of the country leader. So I had, had the whole, I was on stretch assignment to the entire country for about a year. And that job started right before the pandemic hit us. And so that was a year of just managing through closures and keeping people healthy and safe and open and working and all those things. So that was really interesting. And my last year, I transitioned into a corporate project leadership role as the vice president of the veteran affairs team and um, working with under Molly McAllister. And so in that, we did a lot of work in patient safety, telemedicine, gosh, so many things, a lot around wellness plan improvements and that kind of thing. So just a, a really good time there. My perspective from all of that, Isaiah, you know, I have that small business ownership perspective, right? Being an entrepreneur in the middle of nowhere and being on your island to being a part of this really large corporate network, a business model and support and everything. So it's almost like the two ends of the spectrum, right? Is from one far end to the other. And then 2022, I had decided everything has a season. And so I decided my season in corporate medicine was coming to a close and wanted to go back out on my own, you know, as an entrepreneur. And so that is when I started Reality Vet Coaching Consulting. And so I went back to practice, went back to the front lines just to see what it was like post-COVID and get that perspective as an owner. I worked for a little mom and pop just a few miles down the road from me. And it's been great to be there as I figure out how to build yeah, this coaching business. So when you think about the arc of, of a career, and it's not that it's over, right? You still have a lot of years to, to do whatever you want, right? From that standpoint. But there is a lot of change, as you mentioned, like both ends of the spectrum. What were the things that you loved most about one end and the other? Because I think a lot of times it's, hey, this is really good. This one's bad. And everyone has their own opinion where you've seen both. And you're like, hey, these were both super helpful for me. And they fit for what you were looking for in life. What did you enjoy about kind of those differences that helps. So you mean between like independent practice and corporate practice? Yeah. So independent practice, what I loved about it is just the freedom and autonomy that it brings because it's a business that reflects your values, right? I had a vision of what my veterinary practice would look like and I got to bring that to life. It is all on me. There's, there's not, you know, there's nobody else in the boat rowing with you really to make that happen. But I love the community around me. I love the small town. Yeah, I was in a small town. Just how I got to not only care for animals, but just create something that wasn't there. You know, I got, I got to create something. So I, that's what I love there. In the corporate space, what I loved was one was just the community of people around you. And I think that's what's really lacking for independent practice owners is you know, a corporation by definition, right, is a group of people trying to accomplish something instead of a person trying to accomplish something. The group around me, you know, between my peers and colleagues and mentors and you name it, all around me, that all had a shared vision and purpose. And so we all worked towards that purpose together. And I really love that is you, know, you got to fulfill a vision and a mission, especially at that size, that impacts an industry. And I really, really love the idea of doing something that changes who we are as a profession for the better. And so that's what I really loved about the corporate side, that in a small setting, like an independent practice, you can do that in your community, right? You do that locally and you have impact on those around you, but on a corporate industry basis, the whole different ballgame. 
Absolutely. So, and I remember when we had connected the first time we met prior to recording, you had talked about the strength in community and was really cool of just like having that network of individuals that know what you're about, that you can go to, even as your role changes, their role changes, like you can stay connected because it's all going to be still likely within vet med, but also maybe personally, right? You're going to make those relationships, friendships, people that you're going to stay in touch with that you've just bonded over time. So it is definitely important. And I think there's been attempts, whether they work or not, it kind of depends on the situation with the person. I think of it almost like a nonprofit, right? Where you get what you get out of it. And so for a lot of independent practice owners, they may be involved in organizations or these membership groups or these kind of masterminds. It's like, well, you can probably get a lot out of that, but sometimes you're like, I'm just too busy and I can't do it. And you feel like you're still alone, but it's like you have to carve out that time to make those and be intentional, or you are going to feel very isolated and very alone. And I think that's a really, really good point where in the corporate setting, you don't really have that option, right? You're probably not going to be there if you just exclude yourself from everything. It's going to be pretty bad. It's going to be a hard, hard, hard time for it. That is a lesson I learned early. That was one of my painful lessons moving from independent ownership to the corporate network, or I was surrounded by stakeholders. And there is a language you, know, you learn when you get into the corporate world. And a stakeholder is everybody that cares about what you're doing. You know, they either want to provide input or they have, it impacts them in some way. And I remember, gosh, in my first few months, I had this really great idea of improving a preventive care culture in my market. And I jumped out, had this big plan, got going, and then discovered that I needed to bring about four or five other people along with me on that plan because it impacted them. I just didn't have that perspective, right? I didn't understand that. And so I received some feedback that says, hey, don't get out ahead of the ship. And, you know, the ship is big. The ship has a small rudder and it's sometimes a little slow to move, but here's how to go about this. And so it was a moment for me. You know, obviously I remember it pretty well. It was about 10 and a half years ago. It was a pivotal moment when I realized that this is somewhere that you just can't go it alone. You do have to bring others with you. If, while that can slow it down, there's so much more you can't accomplish when you go with others. So I think about when we talk about independent practitioners, they do have resources around them. So between their VMA groups, they can, whether they belong to any kind of management groups or other organizations like that, is if they don't prioritize that time to get the most out of that, because it's so easy to get just pulled and sucked into the day-to-day -day work, right? To the, to the reaction and just get this task in front of you done, that we just tend to miss out on the value and benefit of some of those things that aren't so urgent, you know, but they're very important and just like that. And so you lose the benefit of community. When you lose the benefit of community, your perspective narrows significantly. You miss out on opportunities for things. There's people you don't get to know that could have helped you accomplish what you accomplished or have already been there, you know, ahead of you. So this is actually kind of a big speaking platform. You've kind of hit on something with me, Isaiah, that I've been thinking a lot about and writing a lot about is the power of community. It doesn't cost anyone anything to do that. You know, as an independent practitioner, you just have to prioritize that time. It's not a lot of time. It's just some time, which means you have to carve it out of that urgent reactivity that gets in your face every day. So I want to kind of rewind back to one year out of vet med school, right? Out of Oklahoma State, you buy a practice. That probably sounds wild and crazy now, but I think there's some beauty to being naive and being like confident in yourself. And I give you credit for that. And ultimately being able to have confidence, I think sometimes is lacking with younger veterinarians today. 
Whereas in the past, maybe there was that ability like, hey, I can do this, right? And right or wrong, and, and maybe it's not always the right thing, maybe it's not always the wrong thing. Having that confidence is great. But can you share a little bit about that story? Because I think part of some of your struggles there is what you're doing now to like say, hey, if you're that person, if you're me from a long time ago, I can help you make sure it's a little less stressful and a little less daunting than what I walked into. Yeah. So my background specifically that got me to that point was, I guess I had a lot of self-confidence just because of how I was raised. I had to kind of figure things out at a very young age on my own. And my parents were working a ton. I was an only child for a long time. And so even getting through college, there's a lot of resourcefulness and scrappiness that I had to pull together. And I, what I hear is that graduates today don't have as much of that necessarily from a standpoint of like college jobs and high school jobs and some of the toughing it out. And of course, it doesn't apply to everybody, but in speaking to some industry leaders in these areas, that's, that is a trend among more recent graduates is that yeah, they're coming to veterinary school, not even having had their first job. The kids are too soft. They're too soft. These, these you said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> they can send you the no, comments. I mean, as someone that's younger, I hear that all the time from older folks that it's not the same. And I think it is a reflection on some of the people saying that it's like, well, you are the generation that raised these these individuals that maybe are softer. It, yes, we had it hard. So we're making it so easy for our kids, but they're not <laughs> Which, prepared. I get that because that should be, and historically has been the idea and the concept, right? Is like, I want to make life better for my kids. So it's easier than what I had to go through. And I think it causes its own issues, right? And it is a huge reflection and I hate interrupting and I know I shouldn't interrupt you, but I'm like, this is a really big point where you do have to sometimes deal with stuff where it is failure and it does suck and it is hard. And if you've never encountered that and you've been, again, you worked really hard to get into vet school and you have all the grades and you've done a lot of that hard work, but you've not faced some of these other challenges that are there. Yeah, it's going to make it really difficult when you go out and have your first job being in that role where you are basically thrown into the wild and said, go do it. Unless you get very fortunate and you have an awesome mentor that's going to kind of pull you under their wing. And I think we both understand within med, that's pretty rare today. It is. I mean, some of my college jobs like Dairy Queen, retail, those are rough jobs. You're kind of a nobody. And when someone hands you a toothbrush and says, go scrub grout, you're going to go scrub grout because that's what you need to get paid so you can pay for your next tank of gas. And it's interesting because I was in, I think it was my first vet partners meeting, Stacey Purcell, you know, she's the vet recruiter. She shared with the group that she had been speaking to one of the colleges and it was one of the classes doing a presentation. And she asked the group, she says, how many of you in this room have a job right now? And, and I don't remember what year of school they were in, but she said one person raised their hand. And then she said, how many people have had a job before veterinary school? And it was the same. I think the one person raised their hand. It's just this one person. I was like, wow, that is crazy. Just to think about. Um, like I've got a 21 year old and I'm like shoving her into media later. Like go get a job. I'm not totally funding this for you. And if you want to go do fun stuff, you're going to have to work. And, and she doesn't love it. She's like, well, you know, I think she got fired for her first job because of, I don't know what, but it's like that kind of character building experiences I think are important. Now, if we transition to veterinary school, Veterinary school is really hard, super stressful. You're trying to meet a really high expectation of perfection in veterinary school because everybody is afraid they're going to fail the board exam. Everybody's doing all of that to pass a board exam at the end. 
And the culture is, I think we can all agree, is not always healthy in professional school. You have what's expected, which I think kicks off a lot of the well-being issues that we have and other things. But that's like 10 other podcasts. So getting students ready for life, I think, poses its own challenges. Back to my story. And when I decided I was going to buy a veterinary practice, I had been in veterinary school. I did a lot of leadership. So like the Student AVMA Symposiums. I ran Oklahoma State's symposium for like, it was a three-year event, having to learn how to do those kind of things. And I had done other stuff like that, where I just kind of forced myself into situations that were uncomfortable on purpose, knowing that as an introvert, someone who labeled themselves as super shy, which I did, I needed to get more out of my life. And so I just kind of pushed myself into things. So practice ownership, I went to work at a practice that was Again, in Southeast New Mexico, okay, where, so where Texas goes like this right here, I was right there in New Mexico, and, which is where it's Carlsbad Caverns, Roswell area. It's cowboy country. It's a lot of sky and not a lot of terrain. And I loved it. It was great. But I went and worked at this practice and the doctor I went to work for a week after I got there, he left. He was injured. He was 75 years old. He was mostly blind. He should have been practicing anymore. And the reason for that is because he had a no load practice and he couldn't sell it. And that was his nest egg. So I go to work there, not intending to buy it, but because I followed a boy, had a boyfriend out in Texas Tech. And I thought that would be a great idea. And I ended up running his practice really quickly out of school, just out of necessity. And so that year of running his practice, I ended up saying, I could do this, right? Sure. I mean, he sells practice. I like running this practice. And so I'll just buy it. So that was a pretty unique situation, Isaiah, that I don't know a lot of people would run into. And in hindsight, if I were advising my 27-year-old self, I'd probably say don't do it, but I did it. And because I did it, I learned just a lot of those life lessons that served me well today. And I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't recommend it for others. If I were coaching someone deciding to make this decision, I would say, I don't know about this one. You at least really know what you're getting into, which I did not because I didn't have a coach. I didn't have advisors. I just did it. I was out by myself and I was like, looks like a good plan. So I did it. I jumped into the fire. I mean, there's a ton of no-low practices that I think have opportunity for someone to come in and say, there's a community here that needs help. They're willing to pay for it. Maybe not enough yet, right? But you can adjust that practice or do you go out and start your own thing and do a startup? And yeah, I think you just have to weigh, what am I paying for and what am I getting? Sometimes it might be, okay, I'm basically going to pay nothing for this, but maybe I'm buying a building. And the building can be something that at least gets you started. And there's a team there that can help. And maybe it's not the right team. Maybe you experience that too, where you you probably don't have a lot of options in that part of the country where you can say, oh, well, Isaiah's not the best tech. So we're going to go find someone else. Like we got to make do with, with him because at least he's here right now. But for you and what you're, you're building with the reality vet consulting is for that younger veterinarian that is an owner, maybe has recently, maybe it's you after you own for a year or two and saying, Ooh, I don't know what I didn't know. And now I'm starting to encounter these, these issues. How do I best solve for that? So when you think about what you're doing today, I mean, is part of it just from firsthand experience and then what you saw with Banfield, because you do see a corporate group, a lot of times they have a lot of really good processes. They have things kind of figured out where you're not trying to reinvent the wheel when you go into, you know, practice A to practice, you know, Z from that standpoint. 
Yeah. So kind of to back up to what you said at the beginning of that is that, so today about 30% of practices are called no low practices. And that is a term coined to say they're either no profit or low profit. They are surviving, like they're doing fine. The owners are taking home paycheck to provide, but when it comes to valuation, they don't valuate very well. And so they're very hard to sell. They can be sold. People will buy them. But what I'm hearing, this is a lot of my learning from my time at VMX and Nut Partners, is that there are a lot of mom and pop, small mom and pop practices that the consolidators did not look at because they're too small. Their location might be more remote and they may not be making a lot of profit, but they're really great practices, right? So there's this group of practices that really have owners that really want to sell. And then we're coming out, well, I don't know if we're coming out, but there's been a slowdown in some of the consolidation this last year with interest rates that I'm hearing will start picking back up again as interest rates come down, is that it's priced a lot of people out of the market as well. So for doctors that did want to own practices, I think they felt like they can't buy them because the multipliers drove up the cost so much, it, it wasn't competitive. And I'm also hearing that there's an issue with buying someone else's culture. So they are thinking, gosh, it'll be so much easier to just start my own thing and I can start it wherever I want versus having to relocate or purchase someone else's, yet you purchase someone else's practice with their culture, which I think is short-sighted because you're also losing out on a client base, right? You're building something that already is. You can transition the culture, which you will. Just naturally, the culture is based on leadership. So you are buying a culture, but then you're changing that culture as you buy it. So what I'm really passionate about, Isaiah, is just because of my background with independent practice and understanding how hard that life can be. And then seeing, I'd say, just the abundance of corporate management, corporate practice, but with so many shortcomings also, right? I feel like we assume it's just not a level playing field, but I think it easily can be. You know, the benefits of corporate practice that small practices don't take advantage of are using expertise more. I think as independent practitioners, it's very easy to get in a scarcity mindset where to say, well, I can't afford a bookkeeper. I can't afford an accountant. I can't afford a consultant or a coach because it will cost me 500 bucks a month, right? And instead, what they should be looking at is the value, right? The return on the investment that they'll get from saving time, being more focused, having expertise. And when you're in a corporate world, all that's embedded in the corporation. All that expertise is there. All that consulting and coaching is there. When I started at Banfield and I went from hospital to hospital to go work with doctors and work with the managers there, the thing that constantly blew me away is they didn't understand the value of what they were getting because they had me on the medical side and they had a business operator on the business side. We worked together to support those hospitals. In any corporate structure, there is a field leadership component of people who are there to help you. And so what I would love to see is bringing that benefit of that network into independent practices. It might have a cost to it, but a lot of times it doesn't. It's even just having peers and mentors around you that will help you. And then there are ways to get consulting. And in my vision with Reality Vet Coaching and Consulting is work providing a coaching business, which helps you solve the problem and a consulting business because we know the industry, right? We know the business married together in a subscription model. You know, it's a way there it's instead of having to pay a lot for a consultant all out of pocket, 
you pay as you go. It's a way to have that support and someone to help guide you wherever you're at. If you're wanting to buy a practice, if you started a practice or you find yourself a few years and you're like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Like, am I making the right moves? Am I making the right decisions? You know, having access to someone with knowledge and skill, I think is invaluable that can just help you find your way. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course, that's what makes veterinarian special. You're mission driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable, online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They wanna help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow, and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. In the corporate setting, do you see, and I think you had mentioned this when we chatted before, just the understanding of the business model for associates of what they're bringing to the table, what their numbers look like, how that all plays into you know, the success or the struggles or challenges of that specific hospital. Because I think as someone that was an associate that's looking to do their own thing, if they don't understand that within the corporate world, it's going to be even obviously more difficult for them to lead team and leave that, that corporation. What was your experience just with the amount of teams and, and folks you talked to across kind of the Banfield network? I love that question because I think we don't talk enough about what it means to be a really successful associate veterinarian, but I don't think that applies to corporate. I think that applies to any, any setting, right? Anywhere you work as an associate, when a hospital hires you to come work for them, what really makes you succeed? I think for yourself and for them, and from my both worlds, from my independent world and from my corporate world, I had a lot of exposure to different doctors and especially on the corporate side. I mean, I hired a ton of doctors and coached a ton of doctors and there was always some very similar traits to those that were successful versus those that were not. And they're not hard, but you have to know to be intentional about those. And so I always would say when I'm hiring somebody, there's just three things I'm looking for when I hire someone. One is that they're self-aware they know themselves. So they understand what their strengths are and what their gaps are. What are the areas they're not good at? Because when you meet someone who's not self-aware at all, I remember I interviewed this one um, student that I had a question that I loved in my interview process was, tell me about a time you made a mistake and then tell me what was the impact of that mistake. And I remember this one student I interviewed, for whatever reason, she's like, huh, let me think about that for a minute. And I pause a lot. I'm really good at just pausing and waiting somebody out to answer a question. And then she finally said, well, what do you mean? I said, you know, everybody makes mistakes just through school or even in your life. What's the mistake that you made and what impact did it have? A good five minutes, I think, I waited her out. And then she finally like, yeah, I, I can't think of anything. And <laughs> I like, well, I said, ouch. I'm sure she was nervous, but... Just the fact that, I mean, I can come up with 50 in a, in a heartbeat, you know, mistakes that I've made. And so just self-awareness is understanding that, gosh, I am not perfect. And here's what I think I'm really good at. And here's like 
but I'm really not good at it, whether you've done assessments or not. I think that's number one. Number two, you have to be coachable. And that means that somebody can give you feedback that you will accept it and you will do something with it. And not everybody can do that. It's easy to get defensive. It's easy to you know take it personally, but to say, okay, I understand that you are giving me some feedback because I'm not meeting an expectation or there's something that's not fitting here. And thank you for that. And here's what I'm going to try to do differently, you know, to meet that. So coachability is so critical. And then for the third one, it's you really have to be aligned to the mission or vision of where you work, that business model, that hospital, that company, whichever. If you don't agree with how they do business or what they're about, you you shouldn't go work there because you're not going to be happy. There's nothing that's going to change that. You know, you can tough it out, but you're not going to stay. And when you're aligned, not only are you happier because you see yourself as a part of that, but you also promote and advance that mission and vision. So those, for me, those are the top three. I have several, several others, but I'll take a breath and just see what your thoughts are too. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And I think it makes a ton of sense. Like I think self-awareness, I think of like emotional intelligence and being so important because again, as we advance with technology, I think one of the key things is going to be the ability to think differently because it's not always going to be about having encyclopedia up here, right? We have all these tools, but being able to read situations and communicate effectively and deal with emotions, right? And, and being able to, to understand that you might have to adapt your style of communication for who you're with in that moment and knowing the impact that that's going to make and being self-aware is, is obviously huge. And yeah, I would imagine the candidate that you interviewed within five minutes, I feel like you got, got to have something, right? Think of your personal life. Think about your parents or a relationship that you've had. I'm similar to you. I'm like definitely lots of mistakes in my life that you could draw on, but it's a great question. I actually really like that. And so for anyone listening that does hiring, I think that's a great question to kind of throw in your top handful of questions. And one other thing though is just, yeah, there's kind of like the business acumen, right? So for a lot of owners, I hear this time and time again, like, hey, I was really just kind of doing my thing. I was a great doctor and we were doing fine. We we're making some money. And then it's like this change. I got into VMG or I took this course or I hired someone that really helped me understand my profit and loss, my numbers. And all of a sudden it took off because so much of it is not more medical knowledge. Everyone has more than equipped, right? You come out of vet school, like you are obviously very intelligent. You talked about it being really hard. It's like all these other things that aren't part of that curriculum are going to be the point that is going to say, are you a no low practice or are you very successful? And success, again, is nebulous where it's like, what is your success? You don't have to be multi-location, crazy, huge. Some people, that's what they want. Others are like, I want a good paycheck. I want to be able to see my family. I want to have a family, right? And have some semblance of enjoying work and being able to go home and enjoying that time and take a vacation and save some money and not have to work forever. It's like, it doesn't have to all look the same. So I think highlighting those key things before you start is obviously huge as well. Yeah, I wish the veterinary schools could lean into this a lot more because coming out of school, I kept being surprised by how much things cost. As a practice owner, in veterinary school, you're surrounded by all this stuff, all this equipment, and that's just your normal. And then when you come out and you're in business for yourself, I remember, you know, there were things that I needed to replace or wanted to buy or there's to kind of develop or grow or even just provide the basic. I mean, I bought a practice that was built in the 50s and still had a lot of the equipment from the 50s. So including an x-ray generator that was a post-World War II fluoroscope that was not supposed to work, but it worked great. I didn't use the fluoroscope part, but every time my inspector came out, he's like, this thing's still alive. It's like, great. But when I looked at having to replace it, it was like $20,000, you know, to replace that. 
And the thing that I kept wishing is if I could have learned one thing in school that I didn't learn is understanding the business of veterinary medicine. And so it is a bit of a speaking platform for me. I'm actually, I'm presenting at AVMA this summer exactly about that as basically talking about the fact that at the end of the day, veterinary medicine is a business. So we do it for a love of caring for pets. We do it for a love of medicine. We do it for all the reasons that pull us into the profession, right? And yes, that all's true, but there's an outcome to those decisions. And the decisions are, we take a paycheck home at the end of the day and our boss has to pay us or we have to make payroll. We've got to pay the taxes. So there's always a dollar figure tied to that and really energized about helping doctors understand that even as an individual, they are a business, right? You're a doctor, you're a business and you are your business manager. And people say that doctors don't like numbers, right? That they don't want to see the data. They don't want to talk about the money. They don't like numbers. I don't know that I fully agree with that because veterinary medicine, diagnosing a patient requires data. It requires numbers. It, it is something that we do like data. We do like information. But I think because there's a tension between delivering medical quality and somebody being able to pay for it, we don't like to talk about it. Is that's, a, that's an uncomfortable space, really. But if you come out of school and you understand, if I do these three things, my salary will be this, right? This will be the impact I have on my own life and the impact I have in the business I work in. And I spent a lot of time teaching the doctors that I had when I was in corporate about understanding how much they got paid and why they got paid that and how much impact they could change it. Here's how you change where you're at. If you're not happy with how much money you make, especially when you're in a production model environment, is okay. It's based very simple. Is how many pets you see, what your average invoice is, times your production percentage is how much money you make. And so let's back into that. And so you want to make this amount of money. That means either you are seeing more patients or your services increase. And the way your services increase is maybe you advance your skills and your knowledge. So you're offering different services. Perhaps you're more thorough in your client communications and how you present your treatment plans. Perhaps you partner more with your client. Perhaps you leverage and delegate your team more so you can be more efficient. All of those behaviors end up in a more productive doctor, in a more productive doctor that actually gets paid more. I would even say that, say you're not in a production environment, but your salary is when you pay attention to those numbers and you track your numbers. So you look at that type of data is you can show your manager, your boss, say, here's the value I bring to this practice, right? Here is where I'm at. Here's my goal, where I'm headed. And here's what I think my value is. So when you're negotiating your salary, you can show directly and in black and white, the impact that you have on the business as the revenue generator for the business. You know, something else I've seen is I don't think that associate veterinarians understand the power that they have in their hospitals and the impact that they make. By their choices, they can impact staffing. They can impact caseload. They can impact what types of patients they see. But often we kind of come into it in a passive way to say, well, I'm just here I'll do what you tell me to do, right? And whatever there is to CLC, but they don't take a proactive role in that. And every time I've seen a doctor take a very proactive role and they have goals for what they want to accomplish, they accomplish those things. And they also are the ones who tend to move into leadership, get promoted, get more development because they do. Yeah. It's similar to 
know, I go back to my past life as a financial advisor. It's like, well, you can spend less or you can make more net at the end of the day that you have a couple different levers to pull, but it's not like it's just magic to make some other complicated change. These are kind of the two things you can adjust. And sometimes it's like, I can't spend less. It's like, so, okay, can you adjust how you're paid? Can you find another role? Are there these other things? Similar to kind of what you highlighted with, if you're in a production environment, it's pretty simple. And I agree on the salary perspective. That's then difficult to make the case that you need to be paid more if you have no idea what your numbers are. Like, how are you going to go there and justify pushing back? Because, and it's not that it needs to be adversarial. It shouldn't. It should be like, hey, we're going to pay you a fair wage. We want to take care of you. Everyone knows right now it's hard to find really great and retain associate veterinarians. So they should be taking care of you anyways. But to go in there and have an honest, open conversation, because at the end of the day, it should be fair for all parties. You shouldn't be trying to extract something ridiculous from an income perspective from a business owner that has risks and has taxes and has bills and needs new equipment, right? That may, might be really old that they need to replace. And so you need to understand that as well, but you can't have that conversation if you don't know the numbers. Yeah, you can. Knowing your impact to the business is really what that's about. So it's a lot about the numbers. It's also about the people around you, but the measurables are the numbers. And at the end of the day, the business that's paying you to do your job, they're looking at that. They definitely want to know if you're paying your way. And even if you think about with the recent increases in salaries for doctors, where doctors are getting 200000 say you're going to get $200,000 as a new graduate, and you're going to have four technicians working with you. That is not a sustainable model. From a business standpoint, I know nobody's making a profit on that. So how long does it take that new graduate to produce enough revenue to pay for a $200,000 salary? It's going to take a while. And I find the associate making that salary awesome. I'm excited to make that salary. I would also want to know, how is that being looked at by those that hired me? You know, how is that being looked at by management? How long do I have to close that gap? So I'm making enough to support my way. And am I at risk for not continuing to make that or maybe not even being a viable hire? That may be scary talk. But what if someday they say, okay, well, we really can't afford you. What happens then? And I would rather not be surprised by that. All the numbers are there. The data is there. If you ask your, if you don't know how to access it as on your own in the practice management software, I'm pretty sure any manager would help you find it because they want doctors to be business savvy. The more that we're paying attention to our business, that I think that typically makes managers and owners happy because that means you're engaged in the whole impact you have. Even back to the stakeholder comment you made earlier, it doesn't have to be truly in a corporate environment for that stakeholder thing. It can be in a three-doctor practice that's privately owned that you care enough to want to make sure like, hey, it's viable and I'm here. Well, outside of Isaiah, so where I work right now, when I went to work there, I negotiated a base salary with production. And production, I thought was pretty generous, but my employer did not love base salary because that's not how she was paid. And there were times when... I was not making enough money to make my base salary and I knew it. Um, the reason was the clinic was incredibly understaffed. And that's why I negotiated a base because I knew it was understaffed and I didn't have control of that at the time. But after I was there for about a year and a half, I took some time off. I changed my hours and I came back part-time and I let her pay me production only. I don't love it, <laughs> but, but if I don't work, I don't eat. It's a very direct, there's no safety net anymore, I guess. And that's uncomfortable. But I also know that I've got, I mean, I need to be at work and I need to have pretty productive days, which means I have to very much leverage the team that I'm working with, you know, to be at their best as well. 
and I do think there, and I know it's like controversial. There's a lot of people have lots of strong opinions about compensation. I think at the end of the day, it's like, as long as there's alignment and everyone agrees on how it is, and it's very clear, that's honestly the main thing. Because at the end of the day, the vast majority, 99 point whatever percent of veterans I've ever talked to, right? They care about what they're doing. It's not there to like, I'm going to try to maximize how much money I make and I'm just going to do the wrong thing. That to me is not something that I have ever had like concern about, even though I know the general public sometimes likes to think that it's really not. Yeah, it does. It, it requires ethics for sure. I have encountered a couple of unethical situations where doctors were excessively production driven two out of, I don't know, a hundred. It's not a huge percentage, but it will exist. And if there aren't boundaries placed and someone's not inspecting and making sure that the quality is there, that we're doing the right things for the right reasons, it does create that risk. I'd say as an industry, veterinarians are not production driven. <laughs> we're not. I hear us compared to dentists all the time where dentists are like super production driven and veterinarians were values driven. We're driven by a desire and a passion for our career. But there is a bit of a risk to the production model that someone might be offering services that are not needed and, and maybe unethical. On the flip side, there is a risk to doctors who are on salary of not being productive, of not having skin in the game to really deliver. And I think there's other ways to balance and manage that through feedback and assessments and whatnot. But yeah, I've seen both sides of the coin. I've been in a lot of discussions about production versus salary only and seen it happen. And I'd say it's, you know, it might be six to one, half a dozen the other, honestly. What haven't I asked you about that you want to chat through or it's on your heart or mind? You know, Isaiah, the thing I was thinking about before we met today also is just helping independent practices grow. I was trying to find what are the numbers, right? How much of the industry is independent versus corporate owned? And what I found is, so there's approximately 30,000 veterinary practices. In 2018, about 10% of those were owned by a corporate group. And now I think it's around 25% is the estimate. And but 40% of veterinarians are employed by corporations, by groups. So there are still a lot of independent practices out there. And I understand you know, the I'd say the industry trend of consolidation. I don't I don't think it's bad for our industry by any means. I think it brings a lot of forward thought and change to the industry that's needed in our profession. And I really want to see how do we really encourage people to consider buying a practice. Our industry is mostly, the profession is mostly women now that are coming out of veterinary school. They're coming out and they're in, probably in their mid-30s. They have a couple of school-age kids and they're in a place where they want to start a practice. What I've been learning is that that is a very doable thing, even with student debt, even with all the commitments, the financing is there, the practices are there, is how do we encourage these young associate veterinarians to get into ownership? And that's kind of the nut I would like to crack is helping them understand that they are pretty amazing, where they've gotten and what they've accomplished, and having that desire to make your own way and create your own practice is very doable. I completely agree. And I mean, I think that's part of the whole concept of what this podcast has been going back to 2019. And with that, let me ask you this, because we talked about it earlier and you mentioned that you don't believe it. And I would agree with you as well that veterinarians don't care about the numbers. I think a really good study and detailed analysis of showing as an associate with assumptions, right? This is kind of what life could look like versus as an owner, 
again, there's going to be so many assumptions, so many different things that are there. But to lay out the case for ownership and do something that was really think, thoughtful and detailed would make a huge difference that would be widely shared. And so I'll throw it out there. Anyone wants to create it, I'll share it. I've talked about doing it. I just haven't had the time. We'll get there. Yeah, but we'll put our heads I think together. it needs to be done. Yeah, I think it needs to be done for sure. Yeah, I do. I think we need the vision and inspiration for ownership is there's a lot of support for independent practices. I feel like people assume that you can't be an independent practice owner anymore or that they don't want to work for corporations. You know, they want to do their own thing. And there's this term that I heard recently called the corporate refugee did work for a corporation. And now I want to do my own thing. I definitely think there's need for guidance to help pull or I like to use the term woo, woo associates into that ownership space where yes, you absolutely can do this. And here's how you do it successfully. It's not just like hanging on by your fingernails, but do it in a way that the corporations know how to do it with expertise, with support, with a community, with business savvy. And these aren't hard lessons to learn, but it's something that you just have to kind of acquire as you go along the way so that you're paying attention to the skill set of running a business, which is a different skill set than being a veterinarian, and that you can hone that in a way that your practice isn't just a practice you own and just feeds your family, but it's a practice that is high profit. You can turn, you know, if you're like, I'm retiring in 15 years, I'm going to sell that bad boy, <laughs> then go vacation. I do feel that there's a vision for that. I got to sit down and think about how to craft that message. And if you want to help me, I'll, yeah, I'll do I'm, it I'm open to it. Yeah, I'm open to it. So we'll tell everyone we're going to do it. And then I guess hold yeah. us accountable that now we have to do That's it. That's right. right. We'll have to hold us accountable. We just won't, yeah. we just won't put a, a timeline on that yet, Isaiah. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> this is the key. Like, it's going to get done. Just don't tell That's me right. it has to be in a certain time frame. That's right. What's a non-consensus view that you hold within veterinary medicine that maybe your peers haven't that has either changed or one that you've held for a long time? Non? Oh, that's a hard question. You didn't prepare me for that. A non-consensus view. Yeah. Something that if you ask, let's say 10 veterinarians, over half of them would say, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't know if that's a great answer for that. I had to think about that one for a long time, Isaiah, because I, I mean, I have a lot of opinions, of course, as does everybody, but I, I'm just such a mainstream kind of person. Like I try to be super open-minded to lots of views. <laughs> so taking strong stances for me is hard. Okay, here's a viewpoint I have, having dabbled in the telemedicine space, is that I do see telemedicine as a great opportunity for providing better access to care, but I do not think it's going to be in and of itself a super successful business model, except for driving patients into veterinary hospitals. That's kind of in, in the space yeah, that I've It's not held. a standalone thing. Yeah. In the way the world exists today, it is not a standalone model. It is a great doorway to getting patients to a veterinary hospital until we really figure out, can we truly comfortably and safely diagnose a patient with a condition, treat it, and it be successful? At this point, really, we're going to try. We're going to find out, right? We got different states allowing telemedicine to happen. So there's definitely a playground for that. But I think it's a great ad for clients that you already have to give them access to care for follow-up and check-ins in between things. But 
right now I'm I'm not quite in the camp of telemedicine's gonna be the solve that a lot of people think it's gonna be. And I might be wrong, but that's okay. Yeah. I think with anything you have to to go with it where, hey, if presented with new information and you can show me why this is different than what I have said, great, cool. Let's let's adapt to that new information and I've said it many times, but that's a sign of intelligence, right? So it's okay to change your mind. Question for me. So I let every guest that listens to the show or comes on the show, I pepper them, obviously. Same with you, right? Like here's questions that I have I want to ask you. Anything for me that you want to ask? And it can be related to what we talked about. It can be completely unrelated. Anything that you want to fire back my way? Yeah. In looking at the, all the guests that you have, you know, the guests that you have in your show and so many different perspectives and viewpoints that come through, you know, you have a really good vision of what's happening, you know, what people are talking about in the industry. So what do you think is our biggest challenge in veterinary medicine today? It's a great question. It's extremely hard to answer, but I think I would go back to something similar to what you talked about with encouraging young veterinarians. I think confidence is something that is maybe lacking. And I've heard it a couple times from different folks, young veterinarians, they want to refer everything out. They don't want to do it where if you talk to someone that maybe has done it for decade plus, they kind of learn by doing and they are much more proficient to take on more complexity. And I think the nervousness is everything has to go to a specialist and GP doesn't want to touch so many different things. And they're kind of told don't do it because they're worried that they're going to get sued or they're going to have to get drawn into you know, a situation where maybe they're going to regret, they're going to make a mistake. And right, there are costs to those mistakes today, not just dollars and cents, but the pets you're responsible for. And I get that that is a heavy burden sometimes to carry. But I think having confidence in encouraging and saying, hey, you're an awesome veterinarian. I trust you to do this. You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. We're here to back you up. We got your back, right? Or, hey, you're not going to ever know everything. You can read every book, talk to every consultant, listen to every podcast and be 75 years old and still not have enough knowledge to go start a hospital versus if you would have done it a couple of years out of school. Sure, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. You're probably going to blow some money. You're going to do dumb things. But you know what? You'll learn a lot more just by doing than, than by trying to read. And so to me, that's what I continue to kind of hear. So I, I love the stat of the 40% of veterinarians are within corporate groups. And I think if I'm a corporate group, it's how do I get my skill set of my doctors up so they're willing to do more because I think ultimately their goal, right, is gonna, it's profit driven at the top end, which it should be a mix of doing the right thing and then also making a profit the same way on the private practice side. Like I believe you can do well financially and do well by taking good care. That is how a lot of businesses operate and you shouldn't be afraid to make money. But I would say, yeah, the one word is confidence, like giving people confidence to go do things. And especially, and I don't know if it's a generational thing, I don't know if it's the the shift of more women. I've met a ton of women that are super confident at young ages that they're going to go crush it and have, you know, multi-practices and, and grow. And I know they will, right? But I think more people need to have that confidence in themselves to do it. So I guess that's my answer is confidence. Yeah, that's a good one. I've seen that a lot. And that's not an easy solve, right? Because creating yeah, that confidence. Easy to say. <laughs> yeah, creating confidence and competence someone I believe it obviously starts in youth, but in veterinary schools, redefining how we communicate and develop professionals to come out of school. I don't feel like human medicine has the same problem. I feel like human medicine has a more cultural development of a professionalism that we don't have. And it's be really interesting, I guess, from a sociology perspective, you know, to kind of understand the differences there. 
so that there's yeah. more confidence. Mm-hmm. In the joke earlier, and I, I mean, I always take notes when I do podcasts so I can come back to stuff. We t- I made the joke about the kids being soft, right? And I say kids as a joke, right? Because a lot of times I'm not that much older than a lot of people coming out of vet school at the moment. Although I am 34, I am getting older. And so from the standpoint of the selection process of who gets into vet school, if you have someone that's never worked a job versus the person that has had to have grit and grind to put themselves through undergrad, maybe their grades aren't as good. Maybe they're going to struggle a little bit more, but are they going to be a better veterinarian when they're out practicing versus are they the better student going through four years? And I think that's a question that it's not an original Isaiah. Again, a lot of the things that I say in this podcast is just absorbing content from others and kind of cycling it through the way that I think. But a handful of other people have made this comment and I completely agree with it. I think the selection process might actually be broken for who gets into vet school. Yeah. And I think maybe you solve some of these issues if you solve who is going through. Yeah, I agree. And often, well, if we're hiring practitioners, if we're hiring academicians, if we're hiring researchers, it's different. It's a different skill set. But the majority of NRA schools produce practitioners. It seems like often they're training researchers and academicians. And in the selection process, it is a lot different to consider who will be successful as a practitioner versus who will be successful as a researcher, because they are different behaviors and different skill sets. And I think what gets measured is what gets done, right? It's a kind of a standard, a standard phrase. I used to use it all the time. So for veterinary school, what gets measured is the national board exam, right? So that's when you go and you talk to students and you ask them what they're focusing on. They're focusing on passing the next test. That's their complete focus. And the next test is what will get them to the board exam. So that doesn't also build the skill sets that students really need when they come out to practice. That doesn't build communication skills. It doesn't build teamwork. It doesn't build delegation. It doesn't build business. It doesn't build business acumen. And so combining who gets into school, what kind of life experiences you have, and then really looking at curriculums where it creates a more well-rounded practitioner is someone who is specifically practitioner and I think that means that how boards are developed, you know, board exams are developed would have to change as well. How a student is measured as being successful would have to change because how you're measured as successful to get out of veterinary school is not at all the same way you're measured as successful once you hit the door day one as an associate doctor. I think it'd be really interesting. And again, this is another project. I'm not going to volunteer for this one because I don't know how you do it. <laughs> So looking at class rank, test scores, and then personality types for who's owner, who stays associates, and like, and then the nebulous, how are you defining success, right? The successful practice owner, right? Whatever criteria you put around that. And then seeing what that all looks like, I think would be a fabulous, interesting study. And I know like VBMA has their kind of economic summit. If they could create something, and shout out to anyone that has connections, they should try to undertake this of having some way of of measuring a couple of those things for who is then selecting to go into ownership or how do they do this? And and again, your point is really good because that was one thing, again, my mind wasn't thinking of it. Not everyone's going to be a practitioner. And so you need different kinds, but it's like, so each class, right? There's this smaller group that's going to be accepted, right? There might be more people that want to get in, but they're not going to get accepted. So how do you ensure that you have all the different kinds that are going to make the industry, the community as a whole successful? Because you need more than just one type. 
Yeah. I mean, if you think about just the model of veterinary medicine as a whole is we are raising up veterinarians to serve many purposes. So if you think about your practitioners, academia, public health, the military, all the different things veterinarians do from different fields, but then even in the practitioner space, think about food animal, equine, small animal, exotics, is that we are the, I feel you asked me about consensus view. I don't know if this is it or not. I'm a non-consensus view. I feel like we are the exact same profession we were when James Harriet was writing books about being a veterinarian. And that's you know, what drew me into veterinary medicine is we are still training veterinarians to be all things to all people. And when you're trying to be, I'm sure there's a, a quote or a phrase for this, right? But you're trying to be great at everything. You kind of just end up mediocre at all of it. And instead of really honed in on what you're going to be good at and, you know, in school, you have to learn seven species of animals. You have to spend time. I had to study a lot of stuff about pigs and never practiced on a pig in my life. And there's, you know, I know some schools track a little bit more to help with that, but we are trying to broad brush all avenues through one curriculum and then everybody picks their path after that. And I wonder how does this industry ever change if we don't change there, really, at the foundations of how we do what we do? I think that's a great place to kind of tie it up. From there, put a bow on it, right? How can people connect with you? Where online would you send them? Are you on LinkedIn, website, all that stuff? If you want to plug it, I'll make sure it's in the too. Yeah. So Reality Vet Coaching and Consulting, and you can find us at that website. So Reality Vet Coaching Consulting, where I have a website there. I am on Facebook. I am on LinkedIn. I'm also on LinkedIn as just Dr. Kelly Cooper. Easy to find there. And then on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for carving out time and sharing what you uh, did today. This is a great conversation. And as always, I learn stuff each time we go through this. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Isaiah. It's been quite a journey. I've enjoyed this hour and talking to you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. However, you are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself. So I do encourage you to dig in, learn for yourself, and not just outsource every decision that you make. You should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that I talk about, but also make sure they know what they're talking about push them, question them. That's healthy. That's okay. Oh yeah. And you should probably own and learn a little bit about that Bitcoin thing. The biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast. If there's another episode that you really like, that helps folks find it. That helps it grow. Um, reviews are critical. The Apple podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over, give us five stars. If you believe that's what we earned, that would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube, it's a channel, uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive. Other times it's just going to be the conversation. So vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom, that's your host. Click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings 
that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, 8 to 5, no on-call or emergencies. It's appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure. Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving growing small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border, full-time ideal, part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos? Who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you, full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there, so no ER. No on-call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. So type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital. Personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well-established current five-doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on-call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95000 Can be straight salary, pro-sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to Watertown petcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out, let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know, and we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of, I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.